Hey everyone, it's me, Raheel. Can you believe it? It's the final Friday of March. And this month, of course, flew by because there was a lot going down. And especially this week, the new cycle was packed from forever chemicals in our public waters to the Texas Observer's future and so much more. Joining me today to break it all down are political contributor Evan Mintz and contributor Shiam Galyon. It's Friday, March 31st. I'm Raheel Ramzanali, and here's what Houston is talking about today. Welcome in. How is everybody doing? I've got Shiam with me. I've got Evan Mintz. Everyone is watching the city. The Final Four is here. We are the basketball capital of the world, but there was so much happening, so we just got to round up everything, all right? Evan, how are you today? I'm doing great. Shiam, how are you? First time uh, uh, for us doing the news. How are you? I'm I'm so excited to be here with you, Raheel, and it's always a pleasure to be here with Evan Mintz. All right, Evan, let's start with you. What was your biggest story of the week? So the biggest story this week is the sad news that the Texas Observer Board announced that the nearly 70-year-old publication was shutting down. Now, for those who don't know, the Texas Observer has been a longtime bastion of liberal politics in the state. It's had excellent essays, reporting, exposés, and probably best known for columnist Molly Ivins, who reached national stature after writing there in the 1970s. But it's also been a critical first step on the ladder for many of the top journalists in the state. And I'd point to the a Texas Monthly masthead right now. Look at Forrest Wilder. Look at Chris Hooks. They got their start there. And also, I've written for them on and off throughout the years. Now, many conservatives don't really seem to care about this. Oh, these are just a bunch of liberals. They just poked at us. I don't like it. But it is a check on power. And you should want that. And it's also part of a fabric of our state. It's something that made Texas, Texas. It made us unique. You don't see a lot of other red states having something like this. Such a long-lasting institution. And its collapse represents a weakness of journalism in the state, but also a failure to adapt on the side of the Texas Observer Board, that it was a bunch of boomers. They couldn't keep up with a changing state. They couldn't keep up with diversity. It also represents a failure of the key donors and philanthropists who will need to support institutions like this as we see the business model for journalism change. So right now, this planned shutdown has been announced by the board, but former and current staff members are trying to fight it. They're trying to avert layoffs of the more than dozen writers and staffers there, and they've launched a last minute online fundraising campaign. So far, they've raised more than $300,000 since the beginning of the week. And I think everyone needs to contribute to this. Our state is made better when you have people who shine a disinfecting light on the halls of power. And that is something that the Texas Observer did. We should want it to be around and made Texas better. And if we lose it, it makes our state a worse place to be. You brought up a really interesting point about they never adapted to the current climate of journalism and also just adapting mm. business-wise, right? I hope this time around, right? I, you know, I don't know where the power is going to reside, if there's going to be a new board, if somebody's going to step in uh, with the money that's raised, but I really hope they do change and really enter 2023 with a new business outlook so it can thrive. Mm -hmm. I think something they need to understand is that there's a real demand for local investigatory journalism that because of the Internet, 
opinion is out there and it's free and you can get it anywhere and anything. But real journalism, real hard hitting stuff is more critical than ever, particularly in the uh, sections of our state that have lost their longtime newspapers. We have journalism deserts. And these are the places where a publication like the Texas Observer can make the biggest difference. Evan, one last thing on the Texas Observer, and this is somewhat breaking news here. We just saw on Twitter that the Texas Tribune tweeted that, yes, the publisher was going to shut down the Texas Observer, but now they reverse course and they will keep publication going following that emergency crowdsource money of 300000 that we mentioned. So good news, but still a lot of problems left to be fixed with the Texas Observer. So great news. You know, it worked. People's involvement worked. Shiam, how about you? What was your biggest story of the week? Well, the biggest story of the week for me hit me like a truck, metaphorically, and I feel like I just recovered in time to be here with you guys this morning. Sunday night, I uh, drove up to Austin with some friends who work for reproductive justice orgs in order to attend a like a trans advocacy day at the Capitol all day Monday. We were all there to give testimony for House Bill 1686, which was authored by Texas State Representative Oliverson, I think his name is, um, who is from Cyprus, Texas, here, our like Cyprus neighborhood here. Um, a lot of the people who gave testimony were doctors from Houston, Um Representative Oliverson is also a doctor and anesthesiologist. Um, and it was just, you know, I sat in that room for like 15 hours and it was really, really hard to listen to. Um, the bill in question takes away health care rights for parents and their kids who want to seek gender affirming care. Um and I want to clarify, this is only for transgender kids. So if a 15-year-old cisgender person wanted to get breast implants, there's nothing stopping that. There's The law doesn't affect that. This is specifically targeted against uh, families that have a child who is trans. You know, it's it's that part of the story that always drives me nuts, that you have 10 times as many breast implants for kids who are underage in Texas as you do mastectomies like uh, for kids underage as part of gender conforming surgery. So if you want to conform to cisgender, you can do whatever crazy surgery you want. But if you're trying to conform your body to transgender, oh, that's not allowed. I can't wrap my head around that. Thank you, Evan. It was it was so hard. And I just want to be clear. I'm cisgender. I don't have anyone in my family who's transgender, but like 80% of the people I've ever loved, friends, etc., are trans people. And it was hard for me. It felt like I got hit by a bus because of the dishonesty and the way that science was being used to twist and manipulate the narrative. So one thing I want to make sure folks in Houston know, there's two main things. Um, one is that this representative is from Cyprus. <laughs> Just want to make that clear. Someone's neighbor out there is doing this. And two, like there was this narrative that like kids are just one day waking up and being like, I want to change my body. And their parents are like, yeah, but actually if you're a minor, like you're not considered autonomous, like your parent is like part of the decision-making package with you. Um, and it is a careful, long, like slow 
process and it's hard to access care. So I think that, yeah, that was the biggest story for me. 400 plus people signed up to give testimony and they didn't all get to give testimony. They cut off the testimony at midnight and I drove home. It took me like a few days to recover from watching that, but my friends went back to work the next day. Um, I got one of them a massage gift certificate just because of like, <laughs> like, you know, pe- people can intellectualize stuff, but it like hurts your body. Absolutely. That that will take a toll. Isn't it crazy that a lot of things that are impacting our society could be solved by just talking to somebody that's being impacted by them instead of just running with ideas that you think are correct? Like, all we just need to do is talk and learn about, okay, so this is what's happening. Because you brought up a great point. It's not like, um, you know, they're waking up and one day they go, you know what? I want to get this done. No, there's a process. There's so much going into it. And I think a lot of parents and doctors that don't talk to people that are going through this, they they miss that. And it turns into just, I'm just going to go say what I feel like is correct when it's not. And that, and this applies to everything that's happening, I seem, uh, it seems like. So, Raheel, I'm so glad that you brought this up. I actually have been doing a lot of research into this, and maybe this could be like a whole nother episode. But I just want to say for now, like, your instinct is right, that it should be that way. Because in my opinion, that's what a free society is about. And I will say it is actually not that. So maybe that's a conversation we can have at another point, but it's part of like, what makes this so hard? Do you think this bill passes? Uh, my friends who follow this stuff said, yes, it is. It is going to pass. You know, every legislative session, the Texas legislature needs somebody to beat up on, somebody to bully, to act as a distraction, to rile up the base, to make them look good in the Republican primary. Whether it's trans kids, whether it's gay marriage, whether it's Sharia law. Remember when Texas had to ban Sharia law? Do we do that? Are we safe from Sharia law? Like every single session, there's something that's the single most important thing in the world to keep Texas safe. And meanwhile, we're going through the behind the scenes, looking at do we have the money so that we have water? Are we building the water infrastructure? Does our criminal justice system work? Are our schools educating kids? Do we have the institutions of higher education necessary to make sure that the Texas economy is thriving through the next century? These should be the most important things that are relevant to our legislatures. But instead, Every single session, you've got to find someone to beat up on. It's always going to be something. Evan, let's stick with you. What was your most overlooked story of the week? Well, my overlooked story uh, of the week was Robert Downen's reporting in Texas Tribune about Jared Woodfill apparently being aware of the allegations that Paul Pressler had raped a 14-year-old boy long before the current litigation went public. Now, for those who don't know, these are two very important people in Texas politics. Paul Pressler is the godfather of the conservative movement in Texas, and specifically a leader within the Southern Baptist Conference. Before Paul Pressler uh, led a revolution within those ranks, the Southern Baptist Conference was a little bit more like Jimmy Carter, you know? He was also a longtime justice on the 14th Circuit Court of Appeals and just a major player in Republican politics. Jared Woodfill was the longtime head of the Harris County Republican Party from 2002 through 2014, and also a major player in statewide conservative politics, largely representing the interest of the religious right. And he's still involved. He's been a big fighter against LGBT rights. He opposed the Hero Ordinance. He represents Steve Hotze and his weird election conspiracy lawsuits. Now, what's been going on here is that apparently Paul Pressler for years 
have been having sex with little boys and young men. And people within the conservative movement knew about it. Jared Woodfill knew about it. People in the Southern Baptist Conference knew about it. Woodfill claimed he was totally ignorant until current litigation by one of the victims began about six years ago. But under oath, Woodfill said that actually he'd known back to 2004. And not only that, but when he and Pressler were in a law firm together, Woodfill didn't pay Pressler in, say, money or paychecks or equity or whatever. He paid him in boy toys. He paid him in personal young men assistants who would serve him and his family. And many of those young men have basically said that Pressler would assault them and try to have sex with them. Let's put it in blunt terms. Woodfill was sex trafficking to Pressler, who liked to rape little boys. Every single thing that Republicans are saying that the LGBT community does, every single argument that Republicans have against trans rights or drag shows or whatever, is this insane projection of stuff that their leaders are doing and have done. I think that this story has gotten coverage, but it needs to get more coverage. Every single hearing in Austin needs to be about this. Every single Republican elected official and staffer and activist needs to be asked when they knew Pressler was involved in sex with underage boys. And every single hearing needs to involve the questions of what are we doing to bring him and Woodfill and anyone else involved in this cover up to justice? What are we doing to expose any more of Pressler's ilk involved in this? And what are we doing to stop any Pressler's from getting away with it in the future? Like This drives me nuts that we are seeing these hearings about innocent people who are doing nothing to hurt anyone else. Meanwhile, Pressler is out there fundamentally evil behavior and other people covering it up, knowing about it. Why is this not the headline of every single newspaper every single day? These are some of the most powerful people in the state, and they were getting away with it. Anyone who has their conspiracy theories about Jeffrey Epstein, this is our state's Jeffrey Epstein. What are going to be the consequences from this report, if any? Well, there's civil litigation going on. So we're going to see if Pressler and the Southern Baptist Conference leaders are going to owe the victims money. But I think that we need to see some changes to our laws to make sure that people know that there will be criminal consequences for this. I've been joking to anyone who will listen that I presume these drag uh, bills are about dragging Pressler and Woodfill into criminal court. Apparently not. Apparently you have to worry about people putting on wigs and dancing around to bad music. That's the biggest threat to our state these days. Wow. Wow. Just heartbreaking stuff to see for the victims, of course, um, thinking about them. And we'll see if they're, you know, what happens here moving forward. But mm -hmm. wow, just unbelievable. Shiam, anything to add to that? Just that every like the the emotion that Evan brought to that is more than appropriate. Like the listeners can't see my face, but I'm just like nodding and like, what the F? <laughs> what the F, man? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the only way to put it. Shiam, let's stick with you. Uh, what is your most overlooked story of the week? Physicians for Social Responsibility has a report that like uh, thousands of pounds of PFAS, forever chemicals, have been injected into Texas oil and gas wells. So it was it was an article in the Texas Tribune. It was about a report. Um, it did talk about uh, state representative Penny Shaw, who's from Houston, filing a bill calling for an official state-sponsored study on the use of PFAS. Um, but it, there was like not a lot of specific information because the second I saw this, I was like, oh crap, like 
what's going on in Houston, but I didn't get any Houston specific details with regards to this. It was more about like the whole state. Um, and it also mentioned that there's like trade secrets for the companies where they don't have to like report on the specific chemicals or something like that. So I felt like this was mm-hmm. a story that I wanted more information on for sure. I, I've been lurking the Houston subreddit uh, on, on Reddit. And one of the recurring posts is like, what's the air quality like today? And there's like a live map of the air quality. And I was like, oh crap, do we need like a PFAS quality map updater? <laughs> it's actually funny. You mentioned that the Houston Chronicle does have a map and we'll link it here in our show notes. But there is a map of where the likely sources of forever chemicals around Houston are coming from. And there's a lot of information on there. For example, here's a little quote from the story. Some estimates suggest 98% of humans have some levels of PFAS in their blood. So it's already in us. Happy Friday, everyone. Yeah, happy Friday. Oh, yeah. You kind of wonder 50 years from now, are people going to look back at this like how we look back at, say, like lead paint or asbestos? Mm -hmm. Like, how did people even think to put that in their homes? You know, are we going to all be like looking at the soil and be like, how did we think it was okay to do this? Yep. I've got a quick uh, overlook story. So for everyone that's part of the electrical vehicle gang, like I am, by the way, I've had a hybrid since 2010. Um, So what's up? I love mother nature, like truly love her. But we recently joined the full electric vehicle gang and my state registration, I don't know if y'all know this, it was only seven bucks. It only costs $7 to register your EV, which is great, right? This is outstanding. But at the same time, like when I'm registering, I go, okay, I do kind of feel bad about this because I'm not paying my fair share. Well, there is a bill right now to uh, up the registration to $200 to make up for the gas tax loss revenue. So that there's two bills currently being discussed. Well, I could end up paying $200, which is unfair because the average sedan pays $85 in gas tax. Uh, if you just have um, an ICE vehicle, the internal combustion engine vehicles. So that is something that's being discussed right now. I just want to say a hundred bucks would be cool. Like I'm good with a hundred bucks. All right. Like I will pay my fair share. I understand I'm using the roads that taxes used to maintain roads and all that, but 200 bucks. Come on. What are we doing? That's not, that's not even fair. Oh, Texas loves to punish people for doing the right yeah. thing. But I also love Raheel's civic duty. Yes, there you go. That's yeah. <laughs> because I'm still paying the tax through the hybrid that I own. Like we're st- the Prius still is getting taxed, but not the other one. So, all right, it's all good. All right, let's move to a moment of joy, please, because I want to end this on a really high note. Evan, what was your moment of joy? I have somehow been recruited to take part in a YIMBY bracket on the internet. You know, you set up like March Madness and people vote for different folks on the internet. It's me and a whole bunch of other yes in my backyard people. I've survived the first round. I'm currently about to beat the mayor of Emeryville, a small Bay Area enclave known for having an IKEA and also flexible land use regulations. And if I win this, I will go up against California state legislator uh, Scott Weiner. So, you know, Go on the internet, vote for me. Let's show that Houston can beat San Francisco and Texas can beat California. Explain that movement a little bit more for our new listeners, please. Absolutely. It's the idea that we should want to tear down the regulations that stay in the way of construction. Now, some of these things are put in place for 
justifiable reasons. Folks don't want giant buildings next to single family homes. People don't want loud industrial sites in their neighborhoods. But too many regulatory barriers have been put up that make it too hard to build homes. And we don't have enough supply and you have high demand. Things get very, very expensive. So the idea is that if you just make it easier to build quadplexes, octoplexes, other types of apartment complexes, townhouses, then it makes it a lot easier to make sure you have enough homes for people and it keeps housing affordable. Perfect. I have you going to the final four. So Evan, don't disappoint me. Okay. Fingers (laughs) crossed. I believe in miracles. We're going to do it. 11th seed going all the way. I love it. You could accomplish something my Longhorns couldn't. So that's nice. I like that. All right, Jim, how about you? What was your moment of joy? Well, actually, um, when I'm going to go back to the Capitol on Monday, um, in the middle of all the testimonies, there was this stunning, and I just want to say, so many people who came up to testify, brave as heck and courageous and like worthy of so much praise and solidarity. In addition, there was one that was just like mind blowing. Um, and that was when Dr. Colt St. Meyer, I think I'm saying his last name correctly, came up and just wiped the freaking floor. Dr. Colt is a psychologist, so has a PhD in psychology. Uh, they're trans. They grew up in Beaumont and like are very Catholic because, you know, Beaumont, very Catholic. Um, they have a PhD in psychology. They provide health care and like therapy for the trans community. And in addition to having a PhD in psychology, went and got a medical degree from UTMB. So they were the only person who testified who could speak to the mental health component and the, the physician like component. And they do research, medical research, peer reviewed research on trans healthcare. So it was really just, and I, it was just like, it was such a joy to watch, not only because was Dr. Colt just like exceptionally qualified to, you know, give this testimony, um, but there was like something else going on. It, It wasn't about the science. It was about the narrative, really just masterful, um, oration and rhetoric there. That's really beautiful to see. All right. Quick one for me. So my eight-year-old daughter, I took her to a WWE event of a year and a half ago. Yeah, I know. Evan Evan just gave me a face like, what are you doing? Look, I grew up watching wrestling. I, I, I like it. The, the entertainment, the theatrics, it's ridiculous, but it's so much fun. So I took her to the WWE event about a year and a half ago when they started going back to arenas and reopening after the pandemic. And she had no idea what it was. She went there. She fell in love. It was crazy. All right. It was so ridiculous. Now she watches it every Monday, every Friday. And this Saturday, it's WrestleMania. She is so excited for it. So I'm going to sit down. We're going to have a little watch party. She was so pumped for this that she wanted the Texas Longhorns to lose because if they would have won their Elite Eight game, I would be at the final four games supporting my Longhorns. And she's like, no, I want daddy here with me watching WrestleMania. So she was openly rooting against my Longhorns, a school that she's probably going to go to so she could enjoy WrestleMania. So that's going to be my little moment of joy. It's so much fun. It's so ridiculous. I know, but we bond over it. So I'm excited for that. That's so sweet. Your daughter sounds freaking awesome. And then I also love yeah. that like daddy daughter bonding. Yes, that that's the biggest yeah. thing. 
All right, that's going to do it for rounding up everything that's happened this week. Jim, thank you so much for joining us. Evan, thank you as well. And we will talk to you down the road. Thanks, y'all. Talk to you later. That was Evan Mintz, Shiam Galyan, and me, Raheel Ramznali. That's all for today here on CityCast Houston. Our lead producer is Dina Kespa. Our producer is Carleon Jones. And our newsletter editor is Brooke Lewis. And the host is me, Raheel Ramzanali. This week, we've had extra help from our technical director, Noah Snyderman. Our music is by the band All the Kimonos. We'll be back on Monday with a show to talk about the recent push to legalize fentanyl test strips here in Texas. Thank you for listening, and I hope you learned something new. Wait, wait. Oh, shit. Wait, I have something to admit.